Hello friends, as always, I am genuinely humbled to have you here with me for another Tully show before we get what I'm sure you will find to be a very engaging and illuminating conversation with my guest Bobby Duffy underway. Let me quickly remind you, I wish there was a way, I'm sure there is, I can't figure it out, I'm not a smart man, to figure out exactly how many Patreon-exclusive pods I have done. But ballpark figure, I'm not exaggerating, I am pretty sure I am probably coming up on 500 shows. If you've never been to my Patreon, you've never heard 500 different shows, Tully Time Rambling Man, music shows, you name it, I've probably done it, and I continue doing two to three shows every single week. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation, but never forget, there is plenty more where this came from exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. I would love to see you there, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Coming to you live on tape from an above ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, at long last, from London, a professor of public policy at King's College and author of a book entitled, at least here in the States, The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. Hello and welcome, Bobby Duffy. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. I know I went to school for one year in uh, in England, and I know mm. that this time of year you have incredibly short days. I wasn't there for the payoff of the incredibly long days in summer. I'm I'm curious as someone born and raised there, mm. do you feel a need to cope with the really, really short? Are you a person who's not affected or have you devised strategies for dealing with that? Or do you just resign yourself to going temporarily <laughs> insane every winter? <laughs> it doesn't bother me. I was born in Scotland. Oh, so even further north yeah. than than where I am in London, and that was incredibly. You know, it was months of barely any daylight, um, and and then, like you say, it was the joy of as a kid, you could play out till eleven p.m. in the summer in daylight, uh, more or less. So it was kind of the pros and cons, and I don't I don't get affected by too much by this the seasonally affective disorder. Um, so you know, you, you get used to it. And pubs, pubs are a great solution to this. You just go and drink your way through it. Yeah, the lights are always on at the pub, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So I initially reached out to you because of uh, your more recent book, but in in doing my homework mm -hmm. to speak to you today, I found I was just as interested in the previous book, um, Perils of Perception, which here in the states was retitled perhaps more on the nose, if less elegant, mm -hmm. Why We Are Wrong About mm -hmm. Nearly Everything. Did they actually run that past you? Did they give you a choice on that, or did they just tell you this is what your book is called in America? No, no, that was the subtitle of the mm -hmm. UK book. Um, so yeah, the, the UK publisher went for something a bit more subtle as the head title, but it did have that explainer underneath. And the yeah. US publishers are more literal, so they just what they went with. Yeah, here's the main message. Uh, before I get into that, and then the next book, um, what if any unifying thread do you see between the two books? Indeed, just in your area of research, research and professional study in general. Oh yeah, it's a great question because I, I I hadn't really seen them 
connected until I got to the end, I suppose, mm. of the second book. But I mean, it is, it, it's uh, in the end about myth busting around our perceptions and misperceptions, um, because it's the same same sort of theme among generations. What is really this? Uh, what is really different, and what is a myth about what's different between generations? So it's about how we see the world and what's myth and reality about how we see the world um, uh, runs through both. So the book Perils of Perception asks, uh, this is a quote, uh, maybe from the promotional materials, um, why in the age of the internet, where information should be more accessible than ever? I'm old enough, you might be old enough as well to remember a time when we were, hmm. uh, we all took it for granted that we were entering this uh, new age of information utopia. Mm-hmm. Why is it that when information is so accessible, we remain so poorly informed? So two-part question, in what ways are we mm. poorly informed? I have lots, I get, I get tons of information, so how can mm. I be poorly informed? And I mm. guess, to what extent, if any, is our ignorance measurable? How do you know that we're poorly informed? Mm. Yeah, so we, we're wrong about uh, all sorts of social and political realities about our country. The, the focus of the book uh, and what we're wrong about is not um, trivia questions or general knowledge questions that I'm I'm asking people. It's not a, it's not a test. It's like how do you how do you imagine the world or country that you're living in? So we ask things around crime rates, whether they're going up and down or murder rates going up and down, uh, immigration levels, obesity levels. Um, we get people to estimate what they think it is. So you just ask them out of a hundred people at US. Uh, uh, citizens, how many would you say are, are counted as obese, for example? And and then people would guess. We take the average of that and say uh, compare that to the reality and see if people are close or far away. And what you find throughout the book is that people are often very far away. Uh, in fact, it's it's much rarer for people to have an accurate view. There's only a handful of things. That people have a pretty accurate view on average, if you're looking at averages across um, the population. Um, and, and then there was a second question about why or how does that happen? Is that the... Well, actually, that's sort of... Let, let me let me ask that question. Let me flush that. That's the natural follow-up to that. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. Why are people so wrong when facts are so easily accessible? There's popular theories here that come mm. to mind. If we're wrong about what we know, then it seems stands to reason we might also be wrong about the reasons why we're wrong in popular theory. Uh, yep. Where the, Is the media steering the narrative for mm. nefarious purposes? Are um, politicians doing that i tend to think Mm. that yes but um people tend to prioritize feeling right over Mm. being right and also as we all know it it takes a lot of bravery to face the fact that one was wrong about something so um it's easier to uh it's much harder to talk somebody out of an opinion than it is to talk them into one that's right yeah absolutely so those those are absolutely right um I think the the way that I talk about it in the book is you can simplify it into just two big buckets of reasons why we're so ill-informed. One is what we're told, what I call what we're told. So that is that all of those effects of media, social media, politicians misleading us and emphasizing either, you know, completely wrong information or playing on correct information, but that's not representative of, um, uh, of a reality. So, drawing our attention to something unusual uh, because that's what that's the message they want to get across but the second bucket 
is um, how we think. And this kind of relates to your question about the information age and, and how how come we're not all perfectly informed when we've all got this great information out there. It's because, you know, that, that kind of halcyon days of the internet, when we thought this is just going to put the truth out there and people can pick it up, completely really ignored the fact that we're biased human beings with all sorts of uh, effects on how we uh, see and um, relate to and believe information. Um, so there's, there's, the book is focused on both of those effects where quite a lot of it is actually on the social psychology or behavioral science biases and heuristics that lead us astray as much as saying this is the media's fault. Because I, I talk about it in the US book about it being a kind of system of delusion where one reinforces the other because uh, uh, the media and social media know our biases um, because they get you know instant feedback loops on what do people look at and what do they like. Uh, so they can play on those. So the, the, the two are interlinked. So it's things like, as you're saying, what you're talking about, um, about feeling being important is absolutely right. So uh, one of the main effects in this is something called confirmation bias, where uh, you know we are much more likely to see and believe and accept information that, that reinforces our already held views and much more likely to reject or avoid information that questions our views. So that, that means that things like, you know, when you ask people in um, the US, what kills, what, what's, the, what's the main cause of interpersonal violent deaths in the US? And you give them options of guns, knives, or other violence. Um, so three options, what, what, which is it? What kills most people in interpersonal um, violent deaths, guns, knives, or other violence? Uh, the correct answer is guns by miles. Um, you know, seventy percent of all interpersonal violent deaths. It's second only to Mexico in terms of um, the number of gun gun deaths per population. And um, it's uh, uh, but when you when you ask people, uh, about half the population correctly guess that it's guns. But when you look at strong Democrats, only twenty seven percent of strong Democrats. Uh, sorry, only uh, sorry, yeah, only eighty uh, percent of strong Democrats think it's guns. Only twenty-seven percent of strong Republicans think it's guns. So you've got eighty eighty-two percent of strong Democrats who think guns are the are the biggest killer in the U.S. Only twenty-seven percent of strong Republicans, and that's because they're coming at this from an already held view of whether guns are uh, good or bad for society, uh, and that colours their perception. Of reality, um, so that's a kind of confirmation bias. You're looking for evidence of, of things that you already believe, and you, uh, it, and that sticks in your mind, and it projects an image and identity of yourself uh, that is important to you. That is an important um, way of seeing the world to people with these different identities. So there is no same reality in the U.S. seen entirely differently depending on your political identity. On a personal level, it must, it drives me crazy, but I can only imagine how crazy it drives you to see people pulling their hair out 
over policy arguments, for example, where you know the underlying facts or assumptions that they're relying on as the basis, just the starting point of the argument is itself uh, not based in fact. You mm. know, I, for example, I mean, Brexit obviously is, has dominated so much of the national dialogue over there. Uh, and it's like, you guys, not only do I not agree with your opinion, your facts are wrong, just for, for starters, because somebody is telling you, shading the truth or, you know, highlighting mm. this and, and downplaying that. I'm not asking you what newspapers do you read. I don't know how much value that would have to people who are going to hear this here. But how do you consume news? You know, given your professional background, what informs your pursuit of information online mm. as somebody who's presumably trying to find actual facts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, the, in the book, you come at the end of the book, you come up with um, you know the ten things that we can and should be doing to um, have a, a, a close a, a more correct view of the realities out there and one of those is bursting your bubble um because you should be looking for information from different sources and different types because they are skewed in different sorts of ways so i i do do that there's lots of apps that help you read there's ones about reading across the aisle which will put different political stances towards you i don't really use those so much as i just look across um different media but but i think it's really important to recognize that that's not the only effect here. There are sort of other really important human effects that I think we should also have in mind for how do we get a better view of reality. So it's not just related to political identity. So if you think of things like we have a negativity bias because you know we are at the long end of a long line of people who've evolved from uh, our cave people days where negative information was often threat-based information and the people who didn't so things like lurking saber-toothed tigers or whatever the threat is and people who didn't take notice of those threats were edited out of the gene pool so we're actually quite attuned as humans to focus on negative information we're also got a, a bias called rosy retrospection where we think the past was better than it was because we forget the bad from the past we kind of suppress the bad memories from the past so that's that's a good thing for our psychological health but it does mean that we the, the unfortunate side effect of that is it makes means we think today and the future is worse than it actually is so we think things are going downhill so we've got these two biases of thinking things are more negative than they are noticing the negative not the positive and thinking things go downhill and because we've got those biases you'll see that the media focuses a lot on those they we they do not report on slow positive improvements in things that is not a news story fast negative changes are what um they feed us so it becomes self-reinforcing we've got this bias towards it the media know that that's the sort of thing that we like to uh, that we're drawn towards so we get to see more and we think the world is worse and getting worse than it really is in many ways so i, I think just Going back to you about how do you control this yourself as an individual, starting with the assumption that I'm seeing more negative things than there are really are in the world is a good one. And, and starting with the assumption that my tendency is to think things are getting worse when they tend to be getting better on lots of things. I think those kind of little heuristics or little shortcuts and tools are really important to coming to a better conclusion about what the reality is. How, in your opinion, how much worse, well, not how much worse does an ill-informed populace make democracy, just how 
well, okay, let me, I guess, let me put it this way. I'm not sure, and feel free to disagree with me, that we've ever had a very well-informed electorate, right? Like the early days, what I understand of the press here in America is wildly partisan. And then you move out of that into something which is, you know, now an era of the 20th century that we tend to think of as manufactured consent. Everybody's on the same Mm. page, but it's not actually necessarily the correct page. It's the page that the oligarchs and the powers that be Mm. want us to be on, which consent Mm. is good because conformity does make a society function. It just comes with its own drawbacks. Now it seems we moved into an era that's more like the first era of wildly partisan press in Mm. America. So I'm not sure that we've ever had complete good trustworthy information is it especially bad nowadays because it seems like we're reaching a critical mass point where the the structures that uh, although imperfect have served us fairly well for a very long time are in real critical danger because people are wildly off the beaten path of conventional thought and perhaps just factual basis mm-hmm. yeah no i mean i think the evidence on are we more wrong about these social realities than we were in the past is there isn't much. If you in the US, there's studies that go back to the 1950s and 60s asking similar questions to me, but not exactly the same. And we were just as wrong back then as now. And you could say that's not very good, given education levels have gone up and a lot more information is available. So maybe you should be aiming higher than that. But there wasn't a golden age of a perfectly informed electorate, as you're saying. But I do think there are particular dangers now in our and it's it's kind of more like an information system um rather than just a media because you've got the interactions between politics media and social media where they all kind of feed off each other and i i think that is um that is new and more dangerous not necessarily about how uh, to affecting how well informed people are about realities but more about how polarized they are or how sure they are right and the other side are wrong in a sort of culture war way. I think the tools, the particularly the social media tools that we have are completely incentivized to um, outrage us uh, or to get a, an emotional reaction from us because that's what people interact with. Um, they're also... Uh, so they they accentuate the extremes um, of any views in any spectrum of views. When you know we know from lots of our other work in this sort of space that most people are in the middle and much more reasonable and balancing than you would at all tell from um, social media and media interactions on this. So it is that's the real danger is not so much misleading us more as dividing us more in a much more emotional way across these issues so in academic terms this is about effective polarization with an a emotional polarization not issue polarization so much this is um about how we're in one tribe or the other and there's no compromise so let's talk That's about worry. let's talk about your more uh, recent book, the Generation mm. Myth. So this book, it, it, it similar to the stuff we've been talking about, just narrows the focus significantly. Um, out of all of the areas you might have focused on from the larger subject, what, how did you narrow down to this? Why did this strike you as the one that was most worthy of more in-depth study? It's interesting. Yeah, I guess I'm. I had seen some US analysis, in particular Robert Putnam's, Bob Putnam's Bowling Alone 
book in 2000 where Bob looked at um, uh, like social cohesion, social capital and connections between people. And he looked at it in generational way. Um, and so plotting, very simply just plotting the generations, not splitting things by age group over time. So you're just looking at young people over time. You're looking at actually people who were born in a particular decade or social generation. And it was very powerful because what it does is it allows you to predict the future. Because if you start to plot generations and you look, is there a difference between the generations? The older generations are dying out and being replaced by younger generations. So if there's a difference between them, that gives you a really good understanding of what's coming next um, in the balance of opinion in a, or behaviours in a, in a country. So I guess that was the thing that drove me more was actually, I think this is a really important way to understand. Um, this is what initially drove me. This is a really important way to understand what's coming next for society. But then when I started looking at generations, I saw that there was so much nonsense talked about generational difference that's just not true and or completely exaggerated that it turned into a kind of myth-busting exercise of there's a lot of claims about this that um are dangerously wrong um so that was my that was the kind of journey this was looked like a really useful way to do it and then when you looked at how it's actually being used um by lots of people it was very misleading so you argue that, that just the concept of generations as we understand them as being distinct social groups of people, largely meaningless, and, and more importantly, it draws distinctions where we ought to be seeing commonalities. And this, by the way, you're not alone in, in this opinion. I'm probably not telling you something you don't already know. The the Pew Research Center here in America in uh, spring, summer of last year announced it would no longer frame questions in terms of generations. So they've sort of come to the same conclusion that you have. If these uh, distinctions are largely meaningless, why have we all fallen into the trap of of understanding ourselves in 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 generations? Why does it feel real if it's not? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's not quite my conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say because it's um, my my conclusion is actually that um, there's a really valuable method and way of understanding the world here in generations because it's the only way to understand the future. Mm-hmm. If if there's differences between generations then you really need to understand that what is the problem with it is that's not how it's used mostly it's mostly because in order to undo do that you need to track the generations over time to see if this is really a generational effect so is this a, a difference uh, among gen z compared to your gen z compared to millennials and gen x or is it just always been the case that young people are different on this factor so if you were taking laziness at work or not wanting to do work is it always young people or is it particularly gen uh, z and that's what i try to do in the book and what you find is there's a real mix of things that are truly generational and things that are just about age and young people in the past were just as lazy at work as young people are today for example that is like one of the myths um that we get and and I think even Pew, what Pew have ended up saying is we will only use generational labels where we're looking at those kinds of trends over time. What we won't do is use it like loads of bad marketing research does as a snapshot. Because if you if you start labeling 
18 to 28 year olds as Gen Z, you're implying that that's something that's going to stay with them for their life, that that's a cohort effect rather than an age effect. So what they're doing is we're stopping that. We're, we're going to just label them 18 to 28 year olds or whatever the, the group is. And that's a really important so what I'm trying to do is not throw out the baby with the bathwater on this, because if you say there's no value in this, uh, I think you miss understanding um, the world and the future in a better way. But you're right in the sense that uh, most of the stuff that people will see is not truly generational. So you have to be super, super careful. And why why we like it is we love to categorize people. We just... We love to, the, it's like star signs. It's become like a star sign astrology type thing for media outlets. It kind of, they sum up whole generations in one or two uh, words. So, you know, Gen X, my generation are cynical, um, supposedly. Uh, you see this a lot in things. Uh, 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 millennials are lazy. Um, uh, Gen Z are kind of social justice warriors. Um, all of these types of things are just not held up very well at all by the evidence. So we, but we love them. They're, they're very snappy headlines because if you put, we did, you know, if you look at the media content analysis, it's really easy to put baby boomers in a headline and then people have an image and it makes them angry or um, uh, they want to respond to it. Same with millennials. Uh, and increasingly the same with Gen Z. So it's a kind of, it's a really good headline writer's shorthand that projects an image. If I understand what you're saying about the, thank you for clarifying what, what you're saying and what the, 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 what Pew Media is saying as well, um, to an extent, and we often forget this when we talk about different generations, what we are talking about is, well, this is what people in their teens are like, and this is what people in mm. their 20s are like, and this is what people in their 60s are like, and, and, and then, and then th right. that, that signifier somehow gets stuck with them moving forward when really it told us more about their age than their generation. Is that right? That's spot on. That's exactly that's exactly right. So in, in all societal change, there's only three effects, which is, you know, this is the main framework for the book. And it's called, it's um, uh, life cycle period or cohort effects. So life cycle is what you're saying is uh, young people tend to be the same in any era. In some characteristics, older people tend to be the same. Life stage really matters to your behavior and attitudes because you, you're prioritize different things, you know, before and after you've had kids, before and after you've got a job, before and after you retire at different points in life. Then you have cohort effects, which are, you know, something is truly different about a generation. Um, and that that can be economic things of going through, growing up through a boom and lower house prices means that older generations have much more wealth than younger generations. And that looks like that is a cohort effect, at least partly. And then finally, you've got period effects, because and that just means events, really. Things happen and, and blow us off course or change things entirely uh, for society or individual um, generation. So pandemics and economic crises, all of those three effects blend together to make the change. And what the generational, bad generational analysis effectively end up saying is there's just one effect, and it's all down to cohort effects when actually it's really not there's a mix always a mix of those three it seems to me that there is this um this this never-ending 
perpetual myth of um, of generational decline. I'm led to believe that mm. they've found, you know, pamphlets from uh, early settlers in the, you know, pre-revolution United States saying, you know, everybody was fine yes. until now, but these kids today are going to forget <laughs> it. It's, it's all over now. So I gather from your reaction that that is true, that that is a persistent perception. Um, why does that persist? And And are the old people ever right? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, on the first part, yes, absolutely, that is true. So you can go back to Socrates, 400 BC. Mm. Socrates had a massive long diatribe about the young people in his day being uh, bad-mannered, uh, lazy, loving gossip in the uh, place of activity. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was a very long. But they, they just some of the things that he had against young people in his day. Every every era, there was a great letter to town and country magazine in the uk in 1771 that called young people of that day a race of self-admiring emaciated fribbles which is like a is a description of snowflake just 250 years before we had the term snowflake so these are very constant um biases in any era and why it happens is um it's just you know, as you get older young people seem weird to you and um they, they've got they are not socialized in the same era as you into the same norms and habits so the things that they do are by definition going to be uncomfortable or weird um because it's different from when you grew up and our formative years are really important in in forming our views that is uh, you know very solid fact so in some ways if the young people didn't seem weird to us as, as we get older, then society is probably not changing enough. Um, and we're too similar between the generations. In the question of, you know, were they ever right? I mean, I don't, I, I, I haven't seen anything this day that actually that was, that was a terrible generation <laughs> that came through then. And I, I, don't, I think it's, because it, 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 yeah, there are American books that talk about uh, boomers as psychopaths, you know, a whole generation, and actually measures them against, you know, measures of um, psychopathy, and that is, you know, people would look a lot at the baby boomers, but that's so unfair because it, they, it's true that they were very lucky, on average, very lucky about the economic circumstances and all the things that happened, post-war boom, etc. And it's very true they have got an enormous amount of wealth compared to other generations on average. But so would any generation in those circumstances. This is not something innate to that generation, and it doesn't describe the whole generation. So, no, I've no I don't think there is any evidence that actually boomers were worse or more selfish or more um, ignorant than uh, uh, than previous generations or any of them since. Uh, now, when you and say uh, when you say boomer, uh, judging by what I see online, I assume you mean anybody older than twenty seven. <laughs> yeah, though, these terms are flexible on <laughs> yeah how how they are used. Definitely, um, yeah. So the official definition is nineteen forty five to nineteen sixty five. But the um, yes, no, it's it's a term of insult now, as is millennial. Yes, um, and uh, increasingly Gen Z. Um, millennials were particularly unlucky because they came through that young, weird stage where they were viewed as um, just as social media was taking off. So they were 
there's there's whole artworks on things that millennials are supposed to have killed. That that was the theme. Um, millennials are supposed to have killed loads of traditions and things that older generations value, and boomers are supposed to have ruined things for everyone else in different ways. You, you can see that in all the headlines. Um, but yeah, none of it truly generational. Let me ask you a couple more questions. Um, mm. In terms of the ways in which people do change and generations do evolve, it seems self-evident to me that um, Western society, society, just human society, is growing ever more liberal in the broadest sense of, mm -hmm. of that word. I'm not wrong about that, am I? And and why? If 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 that is the case, then then why is that the case? It's a really good question. I mean, it's um. The, yes, it's true. In the West, it's really important to recognize that it's not the whole world. And um, certainly in uh, large parts of Asia and Africa, it's there's no liberalization in actually some of going in the other way. Um, but yes, in, in the Western or Northern uh, Global North, it's um, that is definitely the case. We, we track, track that uh, in loads of surveys where people are more tolerant and more open to difference. And it's kind of explained in lots of different ways by different people, but there's a kind of general theme of as we get more economically secure, which, you know, and more able to afford different things, which we have over that kind of, you know, 30, 40, 50 year period, um, you move from security values to self-expression values where you're more comfortable with expressing yourself and more comfortable with other people expressing themselves. So you become more open. Um, so there's a kind of economic um, element to it. There's also a, a secularization element to it in lots of the world, um, not not all of the world. Um, you know, US stands out as being more religious in um, many aspects than lots of other Western developed countries, but in lots of other ones, that secularization is a driver too. And then there are more cultural uh, drivers where we've got a more common culture, um, uh, a more global culture where popular culture is more open to difference. And that kind of sets a tone for people. That kind of leads me to my next question. I'm curious, you've already talked about how the way that the old people have talked about younger people in England is very consistent with the way that um, we've done here in the States over centuries. But I'm curious how similar or dissimilar are the, I mean, the negative stereotypes about younger generations um, between the U.S. and the U.K. And I even expand that to, you know, Western European nations, mm. because I think we're so inclined to blame things on local economic circumstances perhaps on perhaps on well this person was president and screwed everything up but if you see certain uh if 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 uh if old people in france are accusing the young people of the exact same things as uh old people are accusing young people of in america you can't really blame that on who was president in 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 a given year so i guess our i'm guessing the the negative stereotypes about young people are fairly consistent across the board across western mm. europe and america let me know if i'm wrong um are there any distinctions that you notice those would be particularly interesting to me no, I don't. I, it's um, no. They are quite consistent across different countries about young people in particular. There's there's very um, there's there's large differences in the kind of more culture war divisions that you see 
across countries which have a strong age element to it because you know culture wars tend to have uh, an age element because it tends to be younger people that are more used to uh, and comfortable with change and culture wars tend to be about how is society changing and whether people are comfortable with that so no there's, there's not on young people per se but more on that there, there are lots of differences and emphasis and where um like I say religion is is a bigger factor in the US and and so is race um in many ways whereas uh, it's more about immigration which it is also in the US but more focused on immigration in the UK and in other western european countries um and that's more often expressed through right wing populism in continental europe um than it is because uh, different party systems not too not not just having two big monolithic two parties facing up huge parties facing off against each other there's lots of historical <coughs> cultural political reasons for why that plays out differently in different countries i mean essentially we do a big series of studies on culture wars in the uk where we've done some international comparisons and some reading around the academic literature on culture wars in the US and and that um in very broad terms we are importing into the UK a very US style culture war framing very quickly uh, continental Europe much less but it's starting to happen i get lots more calls from media contacts in Europe now on what what is coming towards us on culture wars and woke versus anti-woke and uh, that has a uh, that has a strong generational element to it oh my goodness i apologize on behalf of everyone for <laughs> exporting that term it's the yeah absolutely it's really, maddening but yeah you're right no i see politicians with funny hair popping up all over the globe now you can't, <laughs> you can't really miss the visual signifier um last question yeah. and then and then i'll let you go yeah um in terms of the way that we understand generations and 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 the myths that you see in 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 our understanding what would you like to see change in the way that we understand generations and what do you think might be gained from adapting or adjusting the way that we understand generations i think honestly if i had one thing on that it would be if people could think of that um life cycle period cohort of framework in anything that they're looking at um that's what i do in my kind of more day-to-day -day work when i'm looking at something is society changing i will say is this an age period or cohort effect um and it's really useful because it's kind of it helps you force you to think actually i'm just i'm calling this gen z issue but it's just young people um uh, uh or i'm calling this a boomer effect but that's just what older people who are retiring alike and similarly not forgetting the kind of period bit it um that really reinforces in you is it, is this about the circumstances now or is this a set effect because we keep we always forget that we the events shape these kind of trends they're not just all set in stone and a lot of the things that we think are certain about a new generation say they're going to be voting less engaging less in politics all those types of things change as they age and but also change with events so we had in the uk real worry about millennials 
when they first came into the adult population that they just didn't seem interested in politics. And then we had both, they got older, uh, but we also had a, you know, five, seven years of political turmoil, whether we had election after election and a Brexit vote. And they got really engaged in in voting and more generally. Um, so things change. It's kind of, uh, it's not set in stone. And we, we still have uh, that flexibility to affect our future. It's not all, it's all not all predetermined from these uh, generational trends. Give them enough time, they'll get fixated on a head of lettuce and boom, you've got them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there'll be more to come, absolutely. All right, well, thank you uh, for staying late and uh, and uh, given the time difference and speaking with us. My guest has been Bobby Duffy. We have been discussing his books, Why We're Wrong About Nearly Everything, A Theory of Human Misunderstanding, and The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. Thank you, Bobby. No, thank you, Mike. That was great. So there you have it, folks. Before you go trashing Generation Z or Alpha or whatever we're up to now, remember, we were all morons once, too. You were listening to a guy who literally did not wear shoes for like 18 consecutive months, and I turned out okay. Before I let you go, let me remind you, patreon.com slash Mike Tully, two to three exclusive pods every single week. We just finished talking about musical first loves, all of you closet Ricky Martin and young MC fans. I am talking to you. That is just the tip of the iceberg of what is waiting for you now and always at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. 